0: Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, and we have a fantastic program for you today. We have Wiley Cash on, and yes, that's his real name, Wiley Cash. So Wiley, welcome to Poets and Writers. Thank you for having me. Well, as
1: we like to ask around these mountains, where are you from? I am originally from Gastonia, North Carolina. Uh, That's where my my family's all kind of from that area. My mom's from Gastonia. And my dad's from uh, just west of there, a little town called Shelby. And I went to school up in Asheville, and uh, that's somewhere around in that area is where I feel like I call home.
0: All right, then you've had you have three great books out right now, and you're shall we say you're on tour now with the third one.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm kind of always on book tour. Uh when my my most recent book, The Last Ballad came out October 3rd, 2017, and I was on the road off and on for about about 3-4 months. And then now I'm teaching um writer in residence at UNC Asheville. And so I'm teaching two classes this semester, but I probably do an event a week, almost on average. I, I tallied it up, and I was telling somebody I'm doing 65 book events this calendar year. So I, I'm hoofing it on the road quite often. I feel like a like a band, like a like a touring college band sometimes. Well, before
0: I get carried away, and by the way, don't hesitate to interrupt me. Okay. Sure. Because as Lee Smith was on not too long ago, and I said, Lee, now you know just to talk over me. And she said, don't worry, honey, I will. <laughs> and it's really a great interview. It's just two people talking over sure. each other. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. All right, well, let's, get to, let's talk about your most recent book. Let's talk about that.
1: Okay. Uh, so The Last Ballad is a novel. It's set in the summer of 1929, and it tells the story of a young single mother who swept up in a violent mill strike. The woman's name is Ella Mae Wiggins, and when the novel opens, she's 28 years old. She's given birth to five children. One of them has passed away from whooping cough. Her husband has abandoned the family. She works 72 hours a week in a textile mill for $9. And um, she's literally working herself to death. She's afraid that she may die. She's afraid more of her children might die. And then she hears about a mill strike seven miles to the east in Gastonia, in my hometown. And she learns about the list of demands that the union has made of uh, of the owners of the mill there. And they're demanding things like a 40-hour work week, and she works 72, a $20 minimum wage, and she's earning nine, uh, equal pay for equal work. And all these things seem like if they were to come true, you know, not only would her life be changed financially and economically, uh, would also be changed existentially. She may not die. Her children may not die and so she decides to take part in this mill strike, and it just has disastrous consequences for her and for her family. And I tried to write a novel. This is based on a true story of the Lorraine mill strike in 1929. Ella Mae Wiggins is a real person. She's from the mountains of Tennessee and got caught up in this great migration of people leaving the mountains and going down to the mills and looking for a better life, and then in reality finding themselves shackled to a cycle of poverty they couldn't get away from. And that's what. That's where Ella found herself that summer, and when I wrote the novel, what I really tried to do was write about the historical moment in the summer of 1929 and all the competing forces of capital and labor and race and gender and class, and and try to portray how violent and how combustible and how intense the summer was.
0: And you had lived, you grew up in Gaston, mm, yes, sir. And were you familiar with this story, or how did you happen to get interested
1: in no, it? No, I, I grew up in Gastonia. My parents were born, and my mom was born in a mill village in Gastonia. My dad in a mill village in Shelby. I'd never heard of the Lori Mill strike. And this was one of the most significant significant labor movements in American history. It involved uh, the American Communist Party, the National Textile Workers Union. There were two murders. There were walkouts. But after it you know, concluded in the fall of 1929, it literally disappeared from history. And my parents had never heard of it. Um, my grandparents didn't talk about it. They had certainly heard of it because they lived through it. But I didn't know about it until I went to graduate school in uh, Louisiana in 2003. And a professor down there found out I was from Gastonia and then asked me about the Lori Mill strike. So I bought it up, looked it up, and discovered this incredible story.
0: Well, I have a quote here. Lee Smith has said, the book is amazingly relevant for for today's world when workers' rights are besieged as they haven't been since the Great Depression. And uh, she really likes your work a lot. So in many, the reason I bring up Lee Smith is everybody knows Lee around these mountains. Mm -hmm. And she got uh, some of her ideas from some of the local characters. Sure. Um, Now, you know, we, uh, on this show, and you're listening to poets and writers out there today, and we're listening to Wiley Cash, and he's talking about his latest book, and I'm going to go ahead, because I just heard him down at the library, and it's just fantastic. So you get a chance to hear Wiley. It's really worth your time. and. Let's talk a little bit about the writers who influenced you, and I ask you the question about Thomas Wolfe mm-hmm. because you know some academic people don't like Thomas Wolfe or they say this or that or the other, but you said a number of writers influenced you, and so talk about those little those writers who influenced you
1: I think uh you know Wolfe didn't influence me so much in terms of style, but he definitely influenced me in terms of reach. I really feel like Wolfe is one of those American writers um uh, I would put up there in terms of the scope of what they're trying to do on the page. You know, Toni Morrison, William Faulkner, really trying to condense all of human life to the word, to the written word. And that left a huge impression on me um, when I was thinking about you know, my own life, the place that I'm from, being worth literature, being worth trying to get down on the page. And that's something that Wolfe definitely believed his own life to be in the life of his hometown, which was Asheville, where I'm living now. And so that was a huge influence on me. And I left North Carolina, Western North Carolina in 2003 to go to graduate school in Louisiana. And Look Homeward Angel is one of the books I took with me because I, I wanted to read about a place that I loved And I wanted to read uh, fiction by a writer who believed that the place that he was from was worth writing about. And so he was a huge influence on me. I mentioned Toni Morrison. She was also a huge influence, or is also a huge influence. And when I read her novel, Song of Solomon, I was just blown away by the community she created, the intricate family ties she created, how she uh, put place on the page, whether it be you know ohio around around the lakes or you know southern virginia um and also the way she wrote about men and song of solomon which is written by a female is the most masculine novel i've ever written i've ever read and i write about a lot of female characters and she inspired me to kind of step out of my what i perceived to be my comfort zone and and write about you know the opposite gender in ways that were interesting and surprising and then um, my mentor, Ernest Gaines, I studied under him in graduate school. and I think he's probably my most direct literary influence in terms of style and character and a tie to place and dialogue and, and scene movement. Um, he's my, my biggest influence, I would say.
0: Well, the, and those are some fascinating writers, some great writers. And I want to get to several more of your books. Now, your very first book, talk a little bit about the land more a land more kind is that right? And you took that quote from Thomas Wolfe. So yes, talk yeah. a little bit about that.
1: Book. Uh, a land more kind than home. The uh, the title comes from the closing lines of Wolfe's "You Can't Go Home Again." Uh, his last his last novel it was published a couple of years after he passed away. Um, that novel's set in the in 1986, and it's about a young boy who smothered during a healing service in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and uh, about the fallout in the community and how. People deal with it, or try to hide it, or try to understand it. And um, I got the idea for that book when I was in school in Louisiana, and a professor of mine brought in a story about a young boy who'd been smothered at a healing service in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I was just really interested in a community of believers that would believe something to death. And so I wanted to write this book, but I didn't quite know where to set it because I couldn't write about Milwaukee. I was living in Louisiana at the time. I didn't feel comfortable writing about Louisiana, but I knew that I could put it in the mountains of North Carolina and have this story come to life because I knew how people spoke, I knew the religious traditions they embraced, I knew what the land looked like, and so that became my my first book.
0: And then the second book, now you have some things in, uh, a story in there that includes baseball, and I'm Mm -hmm. a great baseball fan, Mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about your second book.
1: My second book, um, I started writing A Land More Kind Than Home in 2004, and I got an agent in 2008, and she was never able to publish the book. She was never able to sell it to a publisher, and so I thought I had a failed novel on my hand, so I began thinking about if I were ever going to write a second novel, what would it be about, and I remembered a story my wife told me about playing baseball where she grew up in Wilmington. And that she always had trouble sliding into base. And so at night in the summertime, her dad would take her out to a baseball field in their neighborhood. And they would practice sliding into base. And I thought that was such a beautiful image. A father and daughter on a baseball field spending time together. And then I remembered, uh, and I thought, I want to write about a scene of a father and daughter on a baseball field. But it can't be that simple because that's not a very interesting story. And I remembered the story of two young girls I'd known growing up in Gastonia who'd been murdered. By these these men they were dating, the, the girls were fifteen and thirteen, I think something to that that, that effect, and they were um, they were killed by these grown men they were dating and um, the sweet story of my wife and her father playing softball, coupled with the tragic story of these two sisters came to my mind, and I thought, gosh, you know what if I write a novel about two young sisters whose father's a failed baseball player, and they he kidnaps them from a foster home and tries to go on the run and I thought, well, what if they're there in Gastonia and, you know, Sammy Sosa played minor league ball. I grew up going to see the Gastonia Rangers in Gastonian. Sammy Sosa played minor league ball there and I thought, Well, what if the girl's father played minor league ball in Gastonia and knew Sammy Sosa? And what if this novel's set against the backdrop of the home run race in nineteen ninety eight between Sosa and Maguire? And once I started putting all this together, the story just became very interesting to me and the characters really came alive and So when my first novel sold, I got a two-book deal because I had a synopsis for a second novel ready to go.
0: Well, now we're going to come back to your most recent book, The Last Ballad. And the leading character in that is a real person, Ella Mae Wiggins. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Ella Mae Wiggins. And I think many of our listeners from around these mountains and the valleys here can relate to her. Um, many of us come from some of that background. So mm-hmm. tell us who she was. And I have to tell you that my mother did not choose to go into one of the mills. You mentioned, but I had relatives who went into the tobacco factories at mm-hmm. in, in Winston-Salem. But talk about uh,
1: her life. She was from Tennessee, correct? And Yes, yeah, she was. I think she was born in Cock County, Tennessee, wow. and, and grew up in Sevierville, Sevier County, Tennessee. She met a man up there. She was born in 1900 and met a man named John Wiggins who convinced her to... To go down the mountain uh, into the into the cotton mills, the, the 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 mills were sending people up to the lumber camps and uh, the tenant farms up in the mountains, and saying, you know, come down to the mill village. We'll give you a job. We'll give you a church. We'll give you a school. We'll give you a store. We'll give you a place to live. And then people went down and found themselves stuck because they couldn't. There's a, there's a song there's a song by a, a Gastonia musician um, named named uh, Dave McCarran that says. I can't make the money to move away. I left my mountain home and now I'm stuck here and I can't make the money to move away. And that's where Ella found herself. They, She and John first went down to Cowpens, South Carolina and worked in a mill there. That's actually where my maternal grandmother was born. She was born just a few years after um, Ella came down to Cowpens. Then they settled in Gastonia sometime in the 1920s. And he abandoned the family and Ella was living in a in an African American community, the only white family in this African American community working at a mill. And um it was tough, you know, it was where the, the demand for cotton cloth has waned after World War One, wages are falling, uh the workforce is being mechanized, so production's increasing. Um there's a growing disparity between the haves and the have nots. And uh Ella kind of, you know, Her life came to a head. And the working
0: conditions. Talk a little bit about the working conditions and great section in your book about being called in by the manager of the plant.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was working 72 hours a week in a mill and uh, didn't have any job protections, didn't have any protection on the job. People regularly lost hands and fingers and arms and their lives inside these mills uh it was very common for children to be allowed to lie about their age and have children as young as six or eight or ten uh working inside the cotton mill because their parents needed the money um you know these are loud places they're dirty mills poorly lit uh fire risk is high they're covered in lint in the air people have you know uh, lint in their lungs and coughing and serious diseases and malnutrition It was really the third world working conditions for many people in Southern Cotton. So he
0: calls her in. They call her in because she missed a a shift of work to take care of her child. Yeah,
1: the novel opens with she's been called off the line on a Saturday night. And whenever you're not working at the mill, the Hank clock on on your machines isn't spinning. It's not registering any production. So whenever you get called off the line, you're not being paid. And she knows that. She gets called down to the mill owner's office. And he confronts her about why she has missed work the night before. And she missed work because her three-year-old daughter has whooping cough and she stayed home to take care of her. And he you know, essentially threatens to fire her and kind of humiliates her and kind of lectures her about, you know, how dare you miss work? You know, what if I had a sick child? And he's not taking into account that he's a very wealthy man of means. And if he has a sick child, he can hire somebody to care for him. And his, his children are not going to get sick for the same reasons that Ella's children are going to get sick. And it's this, you know, in, in America we have this idea that If you just work hard enough, you'll make it. And Ella was working so hard that she ran the risk of dying. And it wasn't a matter of working hard enough. It was a matter of having opportunity, and Ella just didn't have it. And so she became involved, the leader of a strike. She became the face of the mill strike, Okay,
0: The face, and I think that's important to clarify. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that she was used by the unions to a degree... Um, you know, talk yeah. a little bit about absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I don't mean to, I'm just interjecting that. In no,
1: I think she absolutely was. I mean, the, the the strike in Gastonia was a communist-led strike. I mean, these are organizers from New York City and Massachusetts and New Jersey who, who, for lack of a better phrase, don't speak the language of the southern mill worker. People who are from Appalachia or from the farms in the South Carolina upcountry, who are from the Piedmont of North Carolina— you know, they don't believe in uh, gender equality. These people don't believe in racial equality. But the organizers from New England, these Communist Party members, espoused these things. And they needed someone like Ella, who lived in a predominantly minority community, who was a strong female, to really come in and be the face of this thing, to kind of be the, the every man, the every woman, the every person for the average striker to really identify with. And so Ella checked all the boxes for them she was also had an an incredible self-possession and a native wit. She was a talented singer, she was a talented speaker, she was smart and she was tough. And um she 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 interjected herself as much as she was placed. So
0: she gets involved in the strike. Now one of the, I'm going to interject this because I see her as a mountain woman. Mm-hmm. I grew up with the mountain woman and her She always said, where there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. And these folks, as you know, they're tough. Mm -hmm. And she was one tough person in terms of a good tough, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. she was definitely an Appalachian woman. And that's something that, you know, we have the old Appalachian Regional Commission. It doesn't cover Gaston County. Um, But, you know, Gaston County is absolutely part of Appalachia because a lot of the people who settled that area were people from the hills and the mountains who came down and brought their traditions with them. It's why it's the same thing about the African-American Great Migration. It's why you find southern communities in places like Pittsburgh and Chicago and New York and Philadelphia. You know, these are northern cities, but people in 2018 still maintain southern accents. They still maintain southern folkways and foodways and religious practices. And Ella definitely was an Appalachian woman. She was tough. She was independent. She wouldn't be pushed around. She wouldn't be bossed. And that, you know, there was, there was the, the, the union. Uh, many of these workers were, were Appalachian, you know, exiles. And they weren't going to be corralled. They weren't going to be labeled as a group because they were fiercely individual, individualistic. And so they needed someone like Ella to come in and organize these people because they weren't going to listen to these communists from New York City. Well, it's a great book, and the title of it is The
0: Last Ballad by Wiley Cash. And listeners, you'll want to pick up a copy out there. I'm not going to dwell on the plot because. Uh it's just a great story and so you'll have to read it for yourself but I want to talk a little bit about your research and you have a great story about going back and walking down attempting to find the spring where she lived mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that meeting a couple
1: yeah I was back in Stumptown uh where Ella lived out right in, in Bessemer City North Carolina uh just a little bit west of Gastonia, and. Um, I knew Ella's cabin had been near a spring and so I was walking along looking for some fresh water and asking people in this community, which is still an African American community, if they knew where any fresh water was and I met an older couple who invited me up onto their porch and so we were talking. It turns out that uh, the, the woman, the, 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 the wife, uh, it was a husband and wife, the wife, her father worked at American Mill No. 2 at the same time Ella had in the 1920s and he had died only six years earlier. And he would have known Ella. And I really, I felt the ghost of history literally slipping through my hands. Because she said the day he died, his mind was as clear as a bell. He could have absolutely told you everything you wanted to know about Ella. And, but they had never heard the story. His husband and wife had never heard the story of the Lori strike. They'd never heard of Ella Mae. And they'd grown up there in, in Gaston County. In the, in the community where Ella, you know, died. And... Um, the woman said, you know why I've never heard about this? It's because they don't want to teach you about the time that poor white people and poor black people got together and wanted the same thing. They, they, people don't. People want, want you to believe that the races have always been divided. Um, but it's not true.
0: That's a beautiful story. And you also, in doing the research for this book, and I'm struck with how much research that you put in your books and how much detail in terms of <clears throat> the information in history. But she, Ella... You said had a great has a granddaughter a great-granddaughter who's written a book.
1: Her great-granddaughter Christina Horton wrote a really wonderful book called Martyr of the Lore Mill Strike. It came out from um McFarland Press in West Jefferson, North Carolina. It came out um I think in 2016. But it's a wonderful portrayal of Ella's role in the strike. It's also got some really wonderful photography, pictures of Ella's children. Um pictures of the mill she worked in in Bessemer City, pictures of the Loray mill and the strike itself. But she's a, she's a great uh, historian and a great writer.
0: Well, Wiley, I want you to talk a little bit about your family. And you talked today about you certainly paid your dues to become a writer. And I was struck with how many jobs you've had. You've worked <laughs> as a cook or waiter and mm-hmm. so on. But talk a little bit about your family. And I love the story about your wife was reading, you thought she was reading your book. She said, this is a great book. And oh, you yeah. said something like that. But talk a little bit of, in, in your, you have two children and yes. your wife. Talk a little bit about your family.
1: Uh So uh, my wife and I met in the summer of 2005. I was in grad school in Louisiana and I had been waiting tables down there. I was teaching during the school year as a graduate assistant, making a little bit of money and waiting tables at nights and on the weekends. And then in the summer... I would wait tables in the morning at one place and at night at a different place. And I just, I wasn't very good at it and I didn't make a whole lot of money. And my brother was renovating houses in, in Asheville and in Wilmington. This is before the bubble. My brother may be single-handedly responsible for the bursting of the bubble. But, um, <laughs> and so I moved to Wilmington in the summer of 2005 and, and renovated a house with him. And I met my wife uh, that summer and we got married in 2010 but I met her the summer I'd really decided to turn A Land Kind Than Home from a short story into a novel. And so she's really been with me from the very beginning of me trying to be a novelist. And you know, she's the person who reads everything first. She's the person who has to deal with me having ideas in my head and always in my head and sometimes on the page. And she's the one. We have two little girls now. Uh, our oldest was born in uh, 24. 14 and our youngest was born in um, 2016 so they're three and a half and two and you know she she's an incredible mom and and an incredible support to me and uh she's a photographer and so our Fantastic. our careers and our interests yeah. have begun she to was align. trained as a lawyer and she's they... uh, her her background's in law she's a practicing attorney in west virginia where we lived for a while and then in north carolina but uh now she's a photographer and our our Interests uh, have aligned in strangely um, interesting ways in the past couple of years.
0: Well, Wiley Cash, we've been listening today to Wiley Cash, and his uh, latest book is *The Last Ballad*. And many of you have read *A Land More Kind Than Home* and *The Dark Road of Mercy*. So be sure and pick up a copy uh, when you get a chance. And and. Definitely, you're on tour, and we talked about that earlier. Any closing comments? I, w- I want to thank you, and I want to thank Wiley Cash today because he has just given a presentation, and uh, obviously has great energy. I gave him some doctor enough, but uh, Wiley, thank you so much for being on the show of today. And any, any closing comments to writers? People, you know, We always tell people how to write. I don't know that you can tell people how to write, but uh, any advice for them as we close out the show today?
1: When it comes to writing, I just tell people to always make sure you read more than you write. That, that the written word is fuel for the written word and you can't do one without the other.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Wiley Cash. And this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Sylvia
2: was working as a waitress in Beaumont. She said, I'm moving away. I'm going to get So her and his shirt's all soaked with sweat and with her back against the bar she can listen to the band and she's holding